From Relay FM, this is Analog episode number 39. This week's episode is brought to you by Hover, Simplified Domain Management, and Red Hat, different for the sake of better technology. My name is Mike Hurley, and I'm joined, as always, by Editor-in-Chief of CaseyList.com, Mr. Casey Liss. Are you just regurgitating some of your intros from Connected at this point? Yeah, I think it's something like that. Uh, well, but, hi, you know, Mike. I, I like saying that you are the Editor-in-Chief, because... What else would you be? I don't know. Founder, writer, nah. all-around awesome guy. All-around awesome guy of of CaseyList.com. Something like that. How's it going, Mike? Good. You should let other people write at CaseyList.com because that would be interesting. That would be a little peculiar. I always thought, um, well, I shouldn't say always. I briefly thought that it was odd that Jason Snell's, well, then new website was SixColors.com. Um, not because I dislike the name, just because it's like it's Snell's website. Why would he call it anything but like JasonSnell.com? And um, as it turns out, I was wrong because he um, is much smarter than I am. And <laughs> yes. as it turns out, he has had other people like our good friend Dan Morin uh, write a lot on the site. So as usual, Jason Snell way ahead of the way ahead of me, at least, if not everyone. Yep. Very clever. Kids, kids got a bright future. Yeah, it's a long, long and bright future ahead of him. All right, so uh, we should probably do some follow-up. Yes, can you start this? Sure. So um, we talked last week about vinyl, and because I'm an idiot, I keep bringing it up. And um, we talked about how I found it distasteful that, as far as I knew, Marco and John had never really experienced vinyl firsthand, and if so, not on a particularly good stereo system. And not to say that, like, spending a bunch of money on a stereo is the only way to make vinyl sound good, but it's it's like, you know, panning a roller coaster you've never been on. You know, how do you know? What if the roller coaster is really fun? Well, uh, Marco and I had a chat in the Relay Slack channel, um, so Mike was, uh, I don't know if you were so much part of it, but you at least witnessed it, and I think in the end of the day, um, I'd like to read a couple of things, and Marco knows I'm going to do this, I'd like to read a couple of things he said in the chat, because I think it I, I it appears I've misrepresented him a bit, and I don't want to do that. And so uh, here's Marco. I said there are things about vinyl that people may enjoy better, and that's fine. But arguments about it being technically superior are unfounded. Um, and I think that's probably fair. Uh, I, I certainly enjoy it more. I don't know enough about the science to be able to speak eloquently as to whether or not it is technically superior. But Marco's a smart guy, so I'll go on faith. He also said, um, and this is a few sentences, but I think it's a pretty good summary. Keep in mind that you're listening to a system made up of all excellent quality components. This is my dad's stereo we're talking about, along with strong emotional ritual influences because it's your father and you're sitting down specifically to listen carefully to something. And then saying that the source it's playing must be superior to listening to streaming music on your phone. And there are just far too many uncontrolled variables there to make that kind of technical judgment. Technically, vinyl and digital both have flaws and both are different kinds of flaws. But vinyl is pr- provably scientifically worse performance in key knowable areas like frequency response and dynamic range. Um, again, I, I candidly, I don't really care enough about the science to confirm or deny anything Marco said. But Marco's a pretty big audio nerd, so I'll, I'm going to take it at face value that he's probably right about this. Uh, go, look, go do a search for headphones on uh, Marco.org if you don't believe me. He's pretty into uh, audio stuff. So... I, I didn't mean to misrepresent anything that Marco had said. And um, uh, what I didn't have, I don't have a direct quote here, but Marco had said to me in that same conversation we had, I think it was earlier today, maybe it was yesterday, 
um, that his family actually had some pretty legit stereos back in the day, including vinyl. And he actually did listen to a lot of vinyl and perhaps doesn't have the emotional attachment to it that I do. And that's fine. But my my lamentation that he hadn't really experienced it firsthand on a decent setup is probably or well, not probably it's just patently untrue. So uh, my bad for that. But in the end of the day, it made me wonder, and we're going to kind of interrupt the follow up for a very quick tangent topic. How do you really like something like how do you qualify quantify something that you like? It's hard for me because in the case of vinyl, I'll stand by that I in my in my heart of hearts, I think it sounds better, but I can't really quantify that. And I think Marco's right. And I think I've said this in various ways in the past, but I think a lot of the reason I find it sounding better is because of the ceremony behind it and all the nostalgia behind it and all that means to me. In the same way that I could tell you that a that a vodka on the rock, where the rock is a neat ice cube, tastes better than vodka on crushed ice. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but I just feel like it does. And so, like, how do you really, how do you quantify something you like? And what do you really do about that? If you try to explain to someone who's like, vinyl's ridiculous, how do you, how do you defend that? Do you defend it at all? Is it even worth trying to defend? I don't know. Maybe this is all kind of rhetorical, but do you have any thoughts on this? Uh, you like what you like. All right, moving on. <laughs> but, but that's that's it, though. Like, no, there, you're right. You can't. You if if you like something, but somebody else doesn't like it, they don't like it with the same kind of emotions that you like it. Mm-hmm. So it's or like the same sort of emotional response, not the same emotions. Sometimes they can be stronger than others, but it's the same kind of idea. Like you can't put into words why you like it, and sometimes, sometimes, and sometimes people can't put into words why they don't. It's just something that you don't like, and it's difficult to explain why I like this one thing and other people don't like it. And there was some. I apologize for bringing this up last week. Um. But there was something that I was trying to get across that I clearly didn't get across very well because when we were talking about this, Marco was making the point. Um, so I think if you try and get across a point and then somebody makes that point in retaliation to your point, it means you didn't get your point across very well <laughs> in the first place. Right. And what I was trying to talk about, albeit poorly, is that for me, vinyl is about the experience. Um, and I know, I know, I, I know when I listen to it, that a CD sounds better than a vinyl record. Like if you are to do the blind taste test, if you've never heard a vinyl record before, right? So you have no emotional attachment to the cracks, the hisses and the pops, and you play it for somebody and they've never heard this before. You do a blind taste test, the Pepsi challenge, they're going to pick the... CD because the CD is more pure sounding. I, I, that's how I feel about that anyway. I, I feel like people would make that choice. But I very much like the sound of the cracks and the hisses and the pops because it adds a different level of character and dimension that you don't have to like. like anybody, you, Marco, anyone listening here doesn't have to like that. And I can see why you wouldn't like it if you don't like it. Um, 
but it's something that I do like because it adds to the overall experience of when I choose to put a vinyl record on, um, I like to listen to those things. And, and Marco was saying to us about how like the the way in which you choose to read something, and I think he used the example of like if you read a handwritten letter from a friend as opposed to a text message, you have a greater kind of emotional attachment to the text message sorry to the to the handwritten letter if that's something that resonates with you and you kind of can't put those two experiences against each other if one means more to you than the other yeah yeah and and i totally see this is the thing i completely agree with that point which proves that i I think i've made my point poorly up to now like i i listen to the majority of my music by choice through digital means because it it's better for the music but there are times where i want to listen to one of my favorite albums and it's an event i'm I'm making an event out of it by getting the record out and feeling the way the the record feels when i spin it in my hands um and then i put it down on the table and i lift the arm up and i put the arm on that is a more for me and again marco also made this point an intentional choice to listen to music and and i think anytime you intend you make an intention with music, it's always going to sound better in your mind. Sure, I agree. Because it's not background at that point, it's the focus. Um, so, all of this is to say uh, that I prefer vinyl when I choose to listen to vinyl because I've made the choice and at that point in time, it is the way that I want to listen to music. But if you're going to give me, like, you can only listen to one or the other, I would probably choose a digital form because it gives me the the better representation of the song that I'm trying to listen to. I agree. Yeah, and it's hard because I don't it's like why is Marco's coffee taste better than Starbucks? Like that's a rhetorical question. I'm not saying it doesn't. I, I like All right, good cuz I had some answers for you. <laughs> well, but like you can't I think I'm at a disadvantage in this conversation because there is science to defend Marco's point of view that I'm insane. Um, whereas I would argue there's less science to defend why a cup of coffee tastes better than another cup of coffee. And it's funny because I almost exclusively listen to music almost always through Spotify. Um, occasionally I'll listen to things in my iTunes library, but usually I have Spotify open, so I'll just go to that. Um, and I don't have a turntable in the house. The nearest turntable to me that I have access to is 45 minutes away from here. It's my dad's turntable. Um, and my brain understands that Spotify every time, hands down, will sound quantitatively better than a, than a well-mastered album, vinyl album will sound. But my heart couldn't disagree more. And I think that's the problem is that it's hard to explain what your heart feels. And it's hard because when I say I think vinyl sounds better, it's because that's my heart talking, not my brain. And I do think vinyl sounds better because my heart is talking, not my brain. It's to me sounds fuller. It sounds richer. It sounds more alive. And again, that's my heart talking and not my brain. And I think that's what's difficult, especially in, in the kind of ecosystem that we're a part of where our entire worlds are ones and zeros it's hard to find that space between zero and one ding 
So anyway, so I, in summary, I, I did not mean to misrepresent what Marco had said, and uh, I am sorry for doing so, but I think Marco's right that in the end of the day, I think what Mike and I both were trying to say, and apparently both failed to say, was, you know what, it's just part of the experience, and, and when you're doing something so deliberately, of course you're going to find it to be more appealing when, rather than just pointing and clicking, and I think that's okay. Is that a fair summary? Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, another bit of follow-up. Yeah, this is this is one piece uh, of online dating follow-up uh, today. Still getting a lot more in, and I I really appreciate people sending this stuff in. Um, and and I I enjoy reading it where it's happy, and I uh, commiserate with people where it's sad. Um, and unfortunately, uh, today's story um, is is a, a a more sad one and it's an interesting one and i wanted to bring this one up because last week we spoke about same sex uh dating in regards to online dating and this is another area that we haven't yet covered but i think is very interesting so this comes from an anonymous person that we referred to as bob uh, bob wrote in to say you both seem to think that online dating is awesome and i agree with you in theory but there is a factor that you guys may or may not have considered race I'm an Indian guy in my mid-twenties who has lived in the US for seven years until very recently. I have several white male friends who've had great luck with online dating. However, it has completely worked against me. My response rate to messages sent on OkCupid is around 0.5%. My white friends tell me theirs is around 5%. And of those who do respond, it's never gotten anywhere. I fully acknowledge that perhaps the problem lies with me and that I may be uninteresting. However, I also know two African-American guys and four other Indian guys who have the exact same experiences that I have. And this is just the people that I know well enough to discuss their dating life with. For what it's worth, OkCupid's data almost uh, also seems to back me up on this. And he's referring to a blog post from OkCupid's blog, which is going to be in the chat room. OkCupid's blog is, is very interesting for this kind of stuff. I've come across it many times, and it has these really interesting trends and things like that. And basically, this data goes to to effectively say that there are racial biases um, as, as, as much as there are in 2014 as there was in 2009. Um, and that is something that it doesn't seem to be changing. Anyway, to continue with Bob's uh, email, I don't mean to make this sound like a sob story of boo-hoo. It doesn't work for me, so it sucks. I'm just wanting to point out my experience. Personally, what I've found to work for me is to meet people through mutual friends. I'm not sure why, but in my experience, people seem to be more accepting of non-white people when meeting face-to-face. Where I find technology to be super helpful is in getting to know people over iMessage, Google Talk, or things like that after the initial friendship is already made thank you bob i really appreciate that feedback i don't feel like i can talk about it really at all because i have no knowledge of any of these experiences but it certainly stands to reason and it certainly sounds like the data is backing him up and and you would think we'd be past that in 2015 but seemingly not but so this is the interesting thing about this, and because I I can see what Bob is saying, right? I can see what he's saying, but I also see the other point. When he meets people in person, they don't have racial prejudices. So why do they exist on on these social networks? So my my question on this is: Are these unconscious biases? Yeah, they very well could be. So uh, that's all. That's all I have to say. I don't have any more to say on that. 
in that regard. But I, I just think it's very interesting that clearly this is not something that, you know, at least anecdotally, Bob is having an issue with in person, but it does seem to be something he is having an issue with in this scenario. Like, the only thing that I can think of is, like, oh, I don't know. Like, when faced with this, like, meat market, as it were, that people seem to gravitate towards a specific preference that maybe they don't when they meet people face-to-face? I don't know. Yeah, very well could be. Plus, I I didn't have a chance to read this blog post from OkCupid, but I'd be curious to see what the what the demographics are of OKCupid as a whole. Like, for example, and I'm completely making this up, if OKCupid is 80% white people, I don't think it's completely unfounded for a white person, be it man or woman, to seek out a man or woman that's also a white person. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying it's not, it's not surprising if that were to happen. Now, conversely, if OKCupid is 75%, what, what did he say his heritage was, Indian? Um, yeah. it, if okay, Cupid is seventy five percent Indian, and he's still striking out constantly, like that's also extremely weird. But no matter what, it's a tough thing. And and God, meeting people is the worst. It really is. Like mm-hmm. I think you and I both got exceptionally lucky in our in our independent stories. But God, it's the worst. And and there's so much. There's a surprising amount of baggage that you run into just in the introduction. And I think that's a lot of what the movie Hitch was about was, you know, getting in this case, in the case of the movie Hitch, it was generally women, but I think it goes both ways. You know, getting a a woman's or a man's baggage out of the way to give a person a chance. And I'm sure I'm just as guilty of it as anyone else. I don't, I would, I could sit here and say, Oh no, of course I would give everyone a chance. Color doesn't matter. Blah, blah, blah. But I'm sure, to your point, Mike, that there's a subconscious bias there that I'm not acknowledging because it's subconscious. It's it's below my consciousness, and and I don't say that with pride. I hope I don't sound prideful. I'm I'm quite the opposite. But I mean, we all have our own unconscious biases and and thoughts. And gosh, to get past that initial introduction and and the initial like awkwardness of hi, what do you do? Oh, man, I'm so glad I don't have to worry about that anymore because it's tough. I think people tend to have a specific type. um, And this type, I don't think necessarily means that you have to, it has to be somebody of the same race. But people may actually have a preferred race, could be any, you know, they could be a white uh, guy who, who is particularly attracted to like Indian ladies, like, or, or like, I don't know, uh, African-American men attracted to white girls, like, you know, whatever. There there are different, there are multiple different makeups this could be. Uh, but I think people tend to have a type and when they're faced with these screens of people, maybe they go for their type. And when they meet people in person, they maybe try and take in a lot more about what that person looks like and is about. Yeah, I agree. It's funny, too, because oftentimes somebody's type is terrible for them. And the the stereotypical example of this, although, again, it goes for both sexes and equal, the stereotypical example of this is like the, the really very nice, pretty girl who just likes guys that are total jerks. They may be pretty guys, but they're total jerks. And so oftentimes, this is this is like the classic high school you know, 
scenario that especially as a nerd in high school, I lived this a million times that, you know, you, you would come to be a good friend with a very pretty girl, but she would never find you interesting at all because you're not as pretty as the jocks are, or you're not as, I don't know, mean as the jocks are. And so here again, this, this girl in this scenario, and again, it's just the same way for guys, but this girl really would probably like a really, really, really nice guy. If, as the chat room is pointing out, if if she didn't put that that guy in the friend zone, and there, you know, guys do it to girls too. Guys put girls in the friend zone, um, and so oftentimes these these types, you know, if you say that your type is, you know, a blonde haired white girl, sometimes that's not always a good thing. Sometimes you really don't want that. Or if your type is a, uh, I don't know, really really athletic guy, sometimes that's bad because sometimes really especially when you're younger really athletic guys oftentimes were really big jerks not always of course but oftentimes and so it's just it's so tough and man i'm just so lucky that i found aaron and and somehow convinced her to marry me a long time ago because you know i'll we'll talk she and i every once in a while about oh man do you ever wish we were just still dating again and both of us will say yeah, yeah, that no, actually no. No, we don't. I'm so glad that's not a thing anymore. So, oh gosh. You have that conversation? Like not That seems like a weird conversation to have. Well, not necessarily that we would be dating other people, but like do you miss the chase? You, you know, in any capacity, do you miss the chase of us chasing each other? And you know, in any good marriage, you keep that chase alive in some way shape or form, but you know, we've been married 7 years now. So, it's almost actually very nearly eight years now. So the relationship just naturally evolves over time. And sure. and it's less about the chase now and more about, well, surviving parenthood right now. But you know what I mean? <laughs> and I, so, imagine, I, I guess I can imagine like the more comfortable you are of each other, the more likely you are to share those kinds of emotions. Right. And, and, and I don't, I don't mean to misrepresent she nor I, um, I mean, both of us are, well, at least I'll at least speak for myself, and I'm pretty sure I'm speaking for Aaron. We're madly in love with each other. But, you know, there's something, uh, certainly in a nostalgic way, there's something fun about the chase and the sure. the courtship and all of that. Um, and I think it's because something you can't, there are many things you can, but that's something you can't get back. Right, because we've already courted each other. Um, yeah. You know, I've wooed her and she has wooed me. And then that's and, and, and not to say it's a binary thing, not to say that it ever really ends. But the way in which you woo each other changes and it's not the same innocent thing it once was. I would say that's almost as true of you and Adina as it is of Aaron and I. I mean, maybe not exactly the same, but surely very similar. No, it is for sure. Uh she she mentioned something about the honeymoon period. <laughs> uh and I was like, We've been together for like eighteen months. I think if there was a honeymoon period, that's probably done now. Yeah, I'd say but so. I don't know. Oh man. But uh, it's God, uh, just again, dating is so hard. And and I hope I'm not sounding like I'm looking down on people doing it. I'm not at all. I, I God, I respect all of you so much because oh, it's so hard. It is so hard. All right, should we take a break? Yes, please. This week's episode of Analog is brought to you by Hover. Quite simply, Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names. It has been my place of choice for many, many years. And when I come to think about buying a domain name, it is the first and only place 
that I think of going. When you're trying to name a project, like I'm working on something right now, I'm trying to come up with a name for it. Naming that project can be really difficult because once you have finally gone through the, the weeks and weeks of work of trying to, to think of a name and get a name agreed on by all parties, you want to be able to quickly get in and register that domains or the, the domains that you're going to need uh, to either protect or to point people to that project. Now, Hover provides super simple tools to allow you to do this. You just go in there, you type in what you like and what you're after. It's going to show you some results, and then you can very, very easily choose the ones that you want to buy if they're available, and you can just buy them in just like a couple of taps, a couple of screens, a couple of clicks. It's not thousands and thousands of options with like lists and lists of add-ons at super high prices. You're going to get in, select what you need, and get out of there again. They have all of the TODs that you're going to want .com, .co .me. they have all of the other crazy ones as well if that's what you're interested in like um, .fish .architect .plumbing I, I think I could just start making up words and throwing them in there and I'd probably get a good shot at some of these new TLDs <laughs> that exist these days now if they if they don't have the domain that you're looking for Hover will either suggest some variations on it. They have very clever domain robots that make some awesome suggestions for you. Um, or maybe if sometimes domains are like not available for purchase, but are available for like auctioning and or for like higher prices. And Hover can actually act as a go-between in helping that stuff work out, which is also really cool. Hover have a fantastic customer support policy. They have no hold, no wait, no transfer telephone support. They're super famous for this and just, you know, good reason why you pick up the phone to Hover and you're going to speak to an actual human being. But if you would prefer to do robotic communication, they have great support documents and they have uh, great email support as well. Um, if you want to talk to your computer or read something on your computer rather than talking to a human. And don't forget Hover's valet service. Somebody emailed me recently to tell me how... Uh, how awesome this was for them, and they wanted me to mention it on the show, so I'm doing it now. Um, it, basically, Hover can take all of the hassle work of switching from your current provider because they will just do it for you. So you say, I want to switch from uh, ABC123 Domain Company, and you just give them your information for that provider, and then Hover just go in there, and they just, just move it all over, and they make sure the DNS is correct, and they do all that stuff for you. This is totally free whether you have 10 domains or a million domains. I mean, maybe if you had a million domains, they'd need to talk to you about it. Let's say 200. There we go. That seems like a good <laughs> upper limit for now. So go over to hover.com and try them out. Uh, I'm sorry, Casey. Use the code VINYLRULES at checkout, and oh, you'll get God. 10% off your first purchase at hover.com and show your support for this show. That's VINYLRULES, V-I-N-Y-L-R-U-L-E-S. That will get you 10% off your first purchase. Thank you so much to Hover for helping us out this week and supporting us here at Relay FM. Oh, yeah. All right, what are we talking I about set, today? I set that code in between these two episodes. That's I okay. now wish I didn't set that code. It's okay. We'll we'll say that it's uh, us just being funny and nostalgic. So I wanted to, to just to talk about something which which relates to a trip that I was on a few weeks ago. Um, ah, yes. I have to interrupt you and apologize for not asking during the show about that trip last episode. Or, God, it might even be two episodes ago now. Um, I completely blanked that you were in the uh, good old United States of America, and I didn't think to ask you about it until after we had wrapped. So I was in um, Atlanta, Georgia for the Atlanta Pen Show um, as part of the Pen Addict podcast. So we had a Kickstarter campaign um, that flew me out there and I got to hang out with Brad um, for the first time. And we recorded uh, episode 150 of the Pen Addict live from the show, which was complete coincidence that it ended up being that episode number. Um, and that's true. 
complete coincidence it just fell on that week uh, that's awesome and, yeah and then we also recorded a video uh, which is going to be out very soon for backers of the Kickstarter project um, and whilst I was in Atlanta I was thinking a lot about nerdiness because I think the Atlanta Pen Show is potentially the nerdiest thing that I've ever done. That's like, saying something, too, because both you and I, we do some nerdy stuff. You know, there are even people that talk to each other and put that out on the Internet, and that's pretty nerdy. But the thing is, with all of that kind of stuff and the technology stuff, it is probably equally nerdy. However, I have a larger group of friends that do this. Mm -hmm. like talk about and are interested in Apple stuff and I think probably in the world there are then people that are interested in really expensive fountain pens or whatever sure so it made me think that you know this stuff really does come in all forms and I kind of I spent the weekend basically like knee deep in this pen nerdiness and like because and it was really interesting because everyone there was you know exactly the type of people that you expect to find at any conventional meetup like they love the thing that they love and they want to share it with like-minded people mm -hmm. like that was like the basis for everybody being there and it created this really nice experience um which was very akin to something like a wwdc but it, it had this like extra thing to it to me because this was my thing interesting okay i'm with you because Again, everybody at the pen show loved it, but it was a small group of us, and like it felt like I was with a bunch of people that were really like mine, and we had this like thing that we knew was kind of crazy for the rest of the world, where it basically probably feels like what it was like to love Apple stuff like fifteen years ago or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like back when it wasn't you, cool. You know, you know why it's awesome, but it's difficult to get everybody else to understand that mm -hmm. because that's the thing like i know why i love pens um everybody that was there that love knows why they love pens as do all of the people that read the pen addict and listen to the pen addict podcast and that kind of stuff um would you say it's kind of like vinyl yeah probably there's <laughs> I, there probably is a vinyl convention that we can maybe try and get you to oh god oh no don't do it don't do it but, like, that's the thing, right? This was this thing that was just so beautifully nerdy. Like, there was this group of people, right? There was maybe, I mean, so there were hundreds and hundreds of people that were in and around the, the like, the pen show. So maybe I should explain what this is in case people don't know what I'm talking about. So it was effectively a, like, a trade show slash convention slash little show that, was like where you people could go and buy things as a consumer you could buy new pens vintage pens that kind of stuff it's a place where business gets done but it's also like like a place where people can go and buy stuff right it's like people come and exhibit their wares effectively in a in a hotel mm -hmm. and these happen all over the world in big cities and stuff um so there was you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people uh coming in over the weekend um, buying and, and leaving, and there, but there was also a smaller group of people, uh, maybe, maybe a hundred, maybe one hundred and fifty, something like that, of people that were there um, because of the pen addict. Hmm. So they were either there to meet Brad because they love his writing, or they were coming to meet us because they love the show, or they were coming to meet, you know, to, to coming to see because Brad has a company called Knock, and maybe they were coming to see the products that Knock sells, right? Mm 
So there was this group of people that were kind of in in part of this uh, larger group, right, with people that were just there for the pen show in general. And this also stretched out to the vendors, right? Most of the vendors, there were a few that knew of the pen addict, maybe like three or four. Um, but the rest of the vendors that were there, they had like no idea. They just didn't understand. It was the same for like a couple of the organizers of the pen show, just didn't understand us. Um, mm. But luckily, there was one that was that we worked with really well. They, they put us on like the um, the schedule and, and like you know we were on the website and that kind of stuff because it was a big thing. Uh, and I think it ended up you know being a real great success for the pen show because it had all these additional people there. So that was kind of how it worked out. And and effectively, what happened was the the pen addict crowd ended up just kind of taking over this hotel um, <laughs> because people that were coming for the pen show would come for the day right mm-hmm. and the people that were staying in the hotel were the people that were exhibiting but then there were also these other people who were hanging out as a group that were kind of like there all the time and we had like parties and stuff um, and we were just like super cool guys and girls and we were just hanging out and it was fun. But it was like this really, really nerdy thing that we were doing, you know, at the same time, which made it all the more better. Mm-hmm. So during this period of time, like on my way home from from the pen show, uh, Stephen filled in for me um, on Upgrade that week and him and Jason at the start of that episode were talking about this kind of idea that like they didn't understand what I was doing like they didn't really get what was happening but they knew that it was like a nerdy thing and it was kind of and they were saying like it reminded them of like the stuff that we love and how it's just a different type of nerdiness Mm. Mm -hmm. so is there anything that you are particularly nerdy about which is outside of the usual Mm, outside of the usual I don't know the usual for this crowd for this crowd, um, I'm pretty deeply into cars. Um, I'm a terrible mechanic. I don't work on cars very well. Although, ironically, just this past weekend, my dad and I um, changed the spark plugs in my car, which for most people is that, that have any sort of mechanical ability, they're laughing because it's really not that interesting a, a, a procedure. But uh, for me, that was well outside of my comfort zone. And um, I did at least half, if not most of the work on that. And so I was pretty proud of myself for that. Um, and every other weekend I go to this thing called cars and coffee, um, which is where a bunch of local car fiends, um, gearheads, petrol heads, whatever you'd like to call us, will, uh, go to a, um, parking lot and just kind of look at each other's cars. And it sounds probably pretty crazy, which is a good sign that it's pretty nerdy. Um, but it's actually a lot of fun, and I've been able to take Declan the last couple times I've gone, which has been really awesome, and I cannot wait to take him when he's, like, walking around all, you know, looking at the cars and saying ooh and ah and all that. Um, and so I think that's fairly nerdy. That's not as unheard of as being into fountain pens, but it's certainly not something that everyone in the Apple sphere tends to get into. Um, and obviously, you know, Joe Steele is kind of uh saying well what about vinyl and yeah i guess that's true that's more of me defending something that i care about and less about something that i actively participate in often whereas i would live and breathe for top gear as as we've talked about and i've talked about a lot 
I love going to Cars and Coffee every other week. Um, I've had two different vacations themed around cars. Once Marco and, and Tiff and Aaron and I went to Germany specifically to pick up his his BMW. Once um, Underscore and Marco and I went to South Carolina to go to BMW driving school. So I'd say that that is probably the best thing I can think of that I'm really into that is not something that's normal for the Apple crowd. So when I was when it when I was there, um, I had this feeling that I don't know if I ever had this feeling in full before. Um, maybe I did, but I really felt like I was with my people more than you would at WWDC. I think maybe because the thing is, like, my pen hobby is shared between me and Brad mostly. And, like, the people on Twitter that I talk to. But, like, friends, for, for my friends, like, my close friends, it's only me and Brad. So being able to be amongst people and talking about this stuff constantly for a whole weekend, um, that doesn't happen. And the Apple stuff and the tech stuff, I'm constantly surrounded by that in my in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, by, you know, we talk about it on we're all talking about it always constantly on twitter and um you know it's in all the blogs i read it's on all the other podcasts i do it's it's everywhere right but the pens tends to just exist for like random interactions on twitter people sending me stuff or me like seeing what people are putting on there or whatever or on instagram um and like the, the hour a week that i record the pen addict but this was just like constant. It was com- like completely for the entire time. And it was like, this is a really exciting and new and different and fun way to enjoy my hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I also was thinking like how lucky I consider myself to that I am able to have a foot in two different communities. Oh, Absolutely. Because I don't think a lot of people get that, like at least a lot of people I know, they like they have the they're in the tech stuff. But I'm also in the pen stuff, um, and it's and it's you know Brad is so well respected, um, like so incredible. He is the John Gruber of pens. Mm-hmm. Like you can just go to his website, take a look at his advertising page, and see what his traffic's like. It's on the page. He is the trust me. He's the John Gruber of pens. Go over to the pen addict, look at the advertising page and see those numbers. Uh, and, uh, you know, by extension, um, in that world, I am also treated with, with uh, more respect than I probably should be because, you know, I do the show with Brad. Because, like, I know stuff, but my knowledge is just, like, nowhere near. It's just not even close to Brad's. Right, right. Um. Because this is his main thing, you know, and he's been doing this stuff and has been involved in this stuff for longer than me. Um, And I know way more than I did when we started the show three years ago. Um, But it's it's continued to to grow, like my knowledge and my interest. And and I think also the respect that the show has and that that maybe that I have along with Brad. So I I consider myself to be very lucky to be in these like these dual communities. but it was just, you know, as well, being being at the pen show was another feeling for me of why I genuinely believe that people need to seek out 
clubs and meetups and groups in real life to enjoy the the things that they enjoy with people. We talk about and I've been talking about for weeks about the you know, how online communication is really important and you should really be thinking about it. And and it, I feel like it's the same here as it is the same there. I think it's a great all of this stuff is a great foundation, but I do genuinely believe that to help you truly understand what it is that you love and to help you take it to the next level, um, whether that be romantically or with friends or in a group of people that enjoy something together. Um, you should, you know, you. It really helps to be able to look into the whites of someone's eyes and see the smiles on their faces. Because as well, do you know what happens at a pen show, Casey? No. Everybody gets their pens, and you know, and they bring them with them, and they let you try them, and they let you feel what they they are like to write with, and they let you feel how heavy they are, and they let you test them out and try the inks, and they swap stuff, and that's one of the great things that you don't get at like. WWDC people aren't swapping their apps because it's not a thing you can do. Sure. But it, that's something that, that, that you can do with the pen show. That's interesting. You knew how many people that were at the show. You knew Brad. Stephen went, right? Yeah, but Stephen came to shoot it, and I we actually didn't get to see a lot of each other. Mm-hmm. So really, was it just you and Brad when you arrived there that you knew? Oh, no, I knew a bunch of people. Oh, okay, okay, I wasn't sure. Like, so, like, I'm a part of the community, right? Sure. So, like, of bloggers and stuff, we've had people on the show, and there's people that I know. and So there were maybe, like, when I... There were probably, like, maybe 15 or... No, maybe, like, 10 or 15 people I knew really well, and then, like, like a, a large group of people that I knew, like, through Twitter or through email or through reading their blogs and stuff. Right, okay. The reason I ask is because... I don't remember what WWDC 2011 was like for me, which was the first time I went. But 2014 and presumably 2015, it's it's definitely a technical conference, and it's definitely a conference I learn a lot at. But it's also me hanging out with my friends. And when I'm hanging out with my friends outside of sessions, the conversations are sometimes technical but oftentimes it's just you're hanging out with your friends you you know what i mean like it's not that we're talking about apple constantly or maybe we'll start talking about some new thing they released at the keynote and then inevitably we'll go back to talking about whatever friends who are in the same room talk about And, and what i was going to ask you was did you find that this was the same way and i guess i'd still like to hear your answer but i was assuming that you didn't really know that many people there and it turns out that was a terrible assumption I think the majority of the conversation is pen related, but there is also, of course, like a, a lot of like general conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember I was uh, hanging out with, with a couple of guys in the bar, and we were talking about British TV comedy shows. <laughs> I think it was with Matthew and Joe. Okay, and uh, we were just talking about a show called The Mighty Boosh. Never heard of which it. Which is a really, really weird uh, British comedy show that I would say you should. Like not you, I don't think you, Casey. I don't think you'd like it, but people should should try it. Like start with the first season, maybe to watch the first two episodes, see if you like it. I don't think you would like it. It's really weird, Casey. Well, British humor often is, and I'm not trying to be snarky. It's just yeah, but this this isn't even like regular weird. This is like this is like weird weird. This is like British people know it's weird. Mm, that must be. Um, that's probably going to fall on deaf American ears then. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so yeah, yeah, and and so there is a lot of that. And but the thing was, this is such an important weekend for me. I had such an amazing time, and the Atlanta Pen Show is now as important a fixture on my calendar of traveling now as anything else will be, and and I will definitely be returning next year. That's awesome. I'm really glad it worked out so well. Um, I I actually would probably have gone, not because I'm not particularly interested in pens, but I just would have loved to have seen you and seen you in your element, um, but I had to be somewhere else that weekend. Uh, but I'm really, really glad it worked out so well, because I know we were talking back when you were you know just starting or thinking about putting up the Kickstarter and putting up the Kickstarter that you didn't know if that was a really good idea or not, and I'm so glad it worked out well. Um, I would like to ask you, just out of curiosity, is there any part of the experience, anything at all? that you wish you could bring to WWDC or perhaps to XOXO or to Ool or to any of the other shows that you frequent? Or do you feel like they're just complete polar opposites? I think it's the sharing that you you don't get this. So like the idea of like, here is this pen that I like. Here, try it. Mm -hmm. And someone taking it from you and actually trying it. Like, that element of sharing um, doesn't exist because it kind of can't about these physical things. Right. Uh, and, and that was such an incredible bonding experience between people because as well, like, we love these things. They are very expensive and we take great care of them. But there is an, there is an, like, an implicit trust between people like that you're not going to break this you're not going to run away with this um like Brad was telling a story on the ep- on that episode that we recorded there was like a a pen swap not like a, not a swap but like a come and show us your like a show and tell basically that was happening cuz a lot of the weekend as well I was working with Brad on his uh store and his stand mm-hmm, mm-hmm. along with um his business partner Jeff and a couple of others like we were working I was actually helping them out to sell their products because it was incredibly busy the entire weekend. Uh, They had a great weekend sales-wise. It was fantastic, and I loved being a part of that as well. Um, But there was this show-and-tell going on, and at one point uh, somebody came and showed Brad, uh, I think think it was Joe Lebo, a guy called Joe Lebo, came through to show show Brad a pen case that he had, and there were no pens inside of it. And he was like, oh, I left them all out there and I thought I'd just come in and show you. But like, it's like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of pens left to people that the guys just met. Wow, that's incredible. That's like handing someone your Mac, your iPad, and your phone, and your watch potentially, and saying, oh, yeah, just hold on to this for a minute. But like, this is the thing, though. Like, and Again, this is something that I don't expect you to be able to understand um, because it's a different world. But those things are not as important mm-hmm. like my iPhone, my Mac like because they're all replaceable, they're all fixable, they're all uh, you can restore them from iCloud yeah, yeah like you can't, d- I have pens that cost as much as an iPhone I have pens that cost that much and if I lose that pen or break that pen or damage that pen, that could be it Mm. Are any of them like old and heirlooms, would you say? Or just you you don't think you could afford to replace? Like, what makes you say that's it? It's hard for me to understand that since I, I have such a digital mindset. What what makes them a one and done sort of thing? 
my most expensive pen that I own um, probably cost me around six hundred and fifty to seven hundred dollars, uh, all in grief. all. Maybe a little bit more. A fountain pen, I assume. Yeah, all my all my good pens are fountain pens. Mm-hmm. I'm a fountain pen guy. Now, this pen is so expensive because of a few different things. It was uh, a gift that I gave to myself as a starting relay present. So it is a pen that I expect to keep forever. Um, so it has sentimental value, which places it even higher. Absolutely. And many of my pens have sentimental value, actually, and, and none of my Apple devices do because they just don't. But this pen um, is completely custom-made. I bought the material from a third party. So it's made of a material called, uh, I think it's like, just think it's called Tiboldi Resin. I, it's beautiful, just just incredibly beautiful. Um, I'm trying to f- see. The thing is with this material, uh, it doesn't photograph very well, but it's you know it really incredible to look at. Uh, but I'll I'll find some some pictures or something and, and put them in the show notes. I actually have got a couple of great ones by somebody who I think bought the material from the same person that I did. So I'll put that into the show notes. So no joke, it is a bespoke pen. So I bought the material from from someone. Uh, it, that sounds shady. It's not. It was, just like, <laughs> it was just like organized through a friend. I put a picture in the show notes, and this is actually the person that had this pen made. She actually had it made as well by the same company. Okay. Um. So she actually had a very similar one made to what I do. Actually, the exact same pen, but she had it to her own specification. So I bought the I bought the material. Um, I contracted a company called Edison Pens to make uh, one of their pens, and they call it um, a Menlo is an, is the model, and it has a very unique filling system. It's a pump, so you like you unscrew this part at the end and you press down, and it like it whatever. Yeah, it's called a pump filler. It's very cool. Um, I requested how I wanted it made. I requested the color of the trim. So like the in the picture that you'll see, it's in the show notes. It has gold, like a gold clip and a gold accent. I have like silver. Um, uh, and I also, was I requested how I wanted the nib to be ground and all that kind of stuff. And this was 100% a custom order. Um, so like this pen is worth so much financially because of all those things but then worth something way more to me and then uh to to take it on further i then had uh at the pen show i took it with me and i had the fountain pen nib uh worked on a bit and what that means is that i wasn't 100 percent happy with the way that it was writing and i wanted it to write slightly differently i wanted it to feel slightly differently so i had a guy uh, called mike masuyama who is a legend um, he did what's called uh, nib work, where he basically took my nib to like basically a, a extremely modified uh, belt sander. And I know this sounds horrific, but what it did was the guy, <laughs> yeah, so he like grinds it with like a sander, um, and what comes out at the end of it is one of the best pens I've ever used in my entire life, like the nibs. Hmm. But like the nib, the nib is uh, eighteen karat gold. Oh, really? Yeah, then it's not completely, but it is an 18 karat gold nib, so it has the contact is gold. Wow, that's incredible. I'm really fascinated by this because it's so, and this is kind of your point, but it is so outside of the realm of what I'm used to talking about and thinking about. Uh, I think I might have mentioned in a past show that a friend of mine, Brad, 
got me um, a relatively inexpensive pa- fountain pen as a as a gift a few months ago, and I've been carrying that as my everyday pen, and I quite like it. Um, gosh, off the top of my head, I don't even remember what it is. Pilot something or other. Um, Metropolitan? Is that a thing? Does that sound right? Actually, I've got, I got just one second. I got that wrong, um, and I had to correct it. An 18-karat gold nib is made of gold. Oh, so it's gold um, through and through? Yeah. Oh, wow. So, yes. You so You have a pilot metropolitan, yes. Okay, so that's what I thought. So, anyway, um, so I'm, I'm kind of... I, I'm dipping my big toe in the in the baby pool of fountain pens, <laughs> and uh, it's certainly an interesting thing, and I, I don't know, I just... I, I find it so fascinating because there's so much that I don't know about it. Um, to kind of round out this topic, because I want to have a moment for Relay Your Feels... Uh, I think I'd asked you what you could bring to WWDC, and you said sharing would be awesome. But is there anything about WWDC that you think you could you could or wish you could bring to the pen show? The size and scope. But would that change it for the worse? No, because you could have a bit like you have more people could be there. So like there is a WWDC of the pen show. It's called the DC pen show. As in Washington? Yes, the biggest in the world. You should come. I'm just down the road. I thought about it, but I can't make it this year. Next year it is. Sold. I I might do. The DC's DC looks and sounds crazy. Hmm. I had no idea that was the thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that's, that's that's really awesome. Like I said, I'm I'm so genuinely glad it worked out so well because I was really nervous. Uh, not because I expected it to go poorly, but it you seemed pretty nervous about it, which made me nervous about it. And I'm so very glad that it worked out as well as it did. A couple of relay of fills. Um, this week relay of fills is brought to you by Red Hat. Okay, so maybe it's not news that supported open source is now widely accepted as the highest levels of enterprise computing. But the extent of adoption is probably broader than you think, and most of the open source running in elite data centers is Red Hat. And it's more than just Red Hat Enterprise Linux too. Red Hat offers storage solutions, cloud computing, and everything you need for application development, all open source and all enterprise grade. The stats are eye-opening. Red Hat runs in every executive department of the U.S. federal government, every airline, telecom giant, and healthcare company in the Fortune Global 500, the New York Stock Exchange, and every commercial bank in the Fortune 500 as well. In fact, more than 90% of all of the companies in that indeed Fortune 500 use Red Hat for everything from the critical to the routine. The only thing that's really surprising is how many people who know a lot about technology don't know this. It's almost as if Red Hat snuck in, got comfortable, and quietly transformed the technology business without making a fuss. Sometimes the most disruptive technology is the stuff that nobody notices at first. To find out more about how Red Hat is quietly redefining enterprise technology, visit redhat.com. Red Hat, build on it, run with it, count on it. Excellent. All right, so relay your feels. Tim has a few Twitter-related questions. Question number one. What are your criteria for following somebody on Twitter? You know, I um, it's something that I don't have a hard and fast rule for. And I think I'm very reticent to follow anyone because I try to be a Twitter completionist 
And every person I follow has some amount of baggage, to use a word I abused earlier this episode, um, has some amount of baggage that comes with them because they could be very chatty. They could be very chatty in a public way, you know, just throwing tweets out into the world, or they could be very chatty with the same group of people that I follow. Um, And that makes me very, very reticent to follow somebody. But if I find myself interacting with somebody a lot and enjoying those interactions and and those interactions have made me think about something differently perhaps than I would have thought about before that's the time when I start thinking about following somebody so um I'll beat on our friend Joe Steele I mean I didn't know Joe Steele for anyone at first and it was by having a lot of fun back and forths with Joe both us ribbing each other and also him and I talking about movies occasionally. And also it helped for me to be on his podcast, but it's not that you have to have a podcast for, uh, for me to follow you. But over time I felt like I was getting to know Joe and Joe was showing me things or talking about things that I don't typically think about or hear about. And so that made, that made Joe an appealing person to follow. And, and I'm glad I did. And so I guess in summary, if somebody is saying something interesting and or we're interacting a lot and that makes me feel good, then that's probably when I'll follow them. What about you, Mike? So my my kind of basic criteria for if I'll follow someone is I take a look. If I know who they are, then I'll follow them. If I like listen to a podcast or something and find them very interesting, then I'll follow them. Um, or if like... I see this person retweeted a bunch or whatever. I know who they are because of that. I check their feed and it looks interesting to me. Yeah. Then I follow them. That's a, that's a good one. That's a really good call. But you kind of answered the second question as well with your first answer, which was say someone follows you. There's a lot of interaction over time between the two of you. At what point, if ever, do you follow them back? What things do you base that decision on? Uh, I wish I could give an answer for this, but it is something that I do. It's like a point that someone becomes... Because it's not even just like having a lot of communication with specific people. It's just like, I don't know, like how... <sighs> Struggling to think of the words to put this in. Like, Yeah, you know what it is? It's do you make me smile? And I don't mean that as in like you're blowing smoke up my butt or anything like that. Just are the interactions we're having making me smile? With Joe Steele and I, you know, a lot of times we'll rib each other about, you know, Velveeta or movies or whatever, um, or Taco Bell or what have you, and shame burritos, etc. But those those interactions, they make me smile. And, and you know, when, when we occasionally talk about movies and are actually serious, I typically learn a lot because Joe works in, in what I would describe as visual effects, and he'll take offense at that and correct me. But, um, you know, he does he does movies, and I don't do movies. And so he knows a lot about the movie business that I don't know. And that makes me smile. And so what, if you're communicating with me, and more often than not I'm smiling because of it, um then that's probably going to make me at least interested enough to look at your timeline, like you had said, Mike, and see, okay, these are, it looks like in general, they talk about interesting things or whatever they're saying, it's making me smile. So I should follow that person. Perfect. Say you and another user follow each other and regularly DM. You even have deep conversations about various topics. 
You have met you haven't met this person, but you consider them a friend. At what point do you bring up the conversation of using something more personal like iMessage? Do you have a suggestion for doing so? Moving up the pyramid, Casey yep. Liss, you're the king of this. <laughs> this is classic moving up the communication pyramid. And generally speaking, and I think I've covered this either with Faith or with you or both, um, generally speaking, what I my my play is to offer whatever the next rung in the communication pyramid is. Typically that's like an iMessage address or, you know, so typically that's a phone number. Um, I'll oftentimes just say, you know, if we're DMing back and forth and again, you know, picking on Joe Steele, this happened. I, I said to Joe, I, or at least my recollection is I said to Joe, Hey, if, if you want, you can always send me an iMessage at, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, um, or you know, five, 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 one, two, one, two. And, um, and sometimes people will take me up on that, and Joe did, and sometimes um, they don't, and that's okay. But it, I like leaving the offer out there so that this way they, it's kind of the ball's in their court to make the decision. And granted, that puts a little bit of pressure on them, but I like to think it doesn't put too much pressure on them because they can just ignore it and move on, and that's okay. Um, but that that's what I like to do. How do you like to handle it? Similar, I think. I mean, typically, I tend to offer up that kind of information when there seems to be a good reason. Like, if me and somebody are talking via DM a lot, like, and it just feels like it's right for there, then it kind of just stays there. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And actually, Joe is reminding me, and he is absolutely correct, that um, the in the case of Joe Steele, the reason I gave him my iMessage uh, phone number was because I wanted to argue with him about Shawshank Redemption, and I found Twitter to be too annoying to deal with at that particular moment. And that is absolutely a factual statement. Because Joe, if memory serves, said that Shawshank is either meh or bad, and that is patently untrue. It is a phenomenal movie. Yeah, that is a weird... That is a weird one. I mean, some of Joe's, some of the things Joe hates, I don't hate. Uh, that's one of them. <laughs> I don't think he hated it by any means, but I think he had some uh, major quibbles with it. And so um, I was. Joe hates everything. That's not entirely true. That's mostly not true. I don't know. You know, it's like he's sort of kind of like John Syracuse. He doesn't actually hate everything. It just sometimes sounds like he does. Um, but anyway, so that's that's how I typically handle it. Um, and actually, I think it was Joe. Somebody in the chat said, what happens when you, let's see who it was. Yes, it was Joe. What do you do about people that you liked to follow, but their interactions aren't? What do you like anymore? Um, you know, I think what he's trying to say is, you know, let's say I follow Joe Steele and let's say that suddenly his entire feed is nothing but shame burritos and I don't know actually legitimately hating every movie that I like. And as much as I joke with Joe about this, I don't I don't think he does. So at what point do I unfollow Joe Steele? Well, that's kind of hard in in the case of Joe because at this point I consider him a friend. We haven't met in real life, but you know, I consider him a friend. Um if it's somebody that I don't know, and actually Mike, you saw a conversation about this in Slack earlier today. If it's somebody I don't know and haven't particularly interacted with, I will quickly unfollow. Like I have no shame in unfollowing somebody. But I think the premise that Joe's driving at is, well, you had a lot of interactions and they were positive, but suddenly things have taken a turn and now they're not so positive. That's hard for me because I should just, I shouldn't have any qualms about unfollowing somebody because it's it's just Twitter, kids. It's really not that big a deal. But I'm, 
I'm too worried perhaps about what other people think of me and I don't want people to dislike me. And so a lot of times I'll turn to a permanent mute rather than an unfollow. How do you handle that, Mike? Permanent, man. Yeah, almost always. If somebody's annoying me, I like put them in mute jail. <laughs> Temporarily? Yeah, so like you'll go in for a week or whatever and I just take, keep a mental note of it. And if I feel like I have to keep doing that with somebody... Then I'll either unfollow them or permanently mute them, depending on the uh effect that 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 breakdown will have. Yeah, I completely. Like if agree. that is going to make a social problem, then I won't unfollow. Like I'm one of those people. Like yeah, I I mute people for political reasons. Um, there are many people that do that. Yep. You can try and sue me, but if you try and sue me, I'll just mute you so we won't even get through. <laughs> Uh, no, I completely agree with you. I also use a mute jail typically for a month. And if I find that at the end of the month, I'm like, oh, yeah, I follow that person. That's usually a sign to me they either need to be permanently muted or unfollowed. That's it. All right. Good show. You bet. If you want to find shout outs for this week, you can find them over at relay.fm slash analog slash 39. Thanks again to our sponsors for this week's episode, Hover and Red Hat. If you want to find us online, I am iMike, I-M-Y-K-E, on Twitter, and Casey is C-A-S-E-Y-L-I-S-S, at, if you want to put in the front for Twitter, and .com at the back will take you to his website. Until next time, say goodbye, Casey Liss. I'll see you later, Mike.